theyeshiva.net. years ago on this night Mitzoy Shabbos of Parshish Shmois Chavdala Tevis the 24th day of the Hebrew month of Tevis the Alter Rebbe Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi the man who revolutionized the landscape of Jewish thought synthesizing the rational, the legalistic, and the mystical streams of Torah into a unified, comprehensive program for life known as Hasidus Chabad returned his soul to its maker. A few months earlier, in July of 1812, precisely Yud Beis Tammuz Tovkuf Ayin Beis in the Hebrew calendar, the French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte invaded Russia. Thus triggered the ferocious and bloody war between France and Russia of 1812. The Alter Rebbe, who was a great opponent of Napoleon, did not want to be under his dominion and rule even for a single day. And he immediately decided to escape Liadi where he lived, which is at the border of Belarus, which was close to the border where Napoleon invaded. And a few weeks before Rosh Hashanah of 1812, the Alter Rebbe and his family escaped and fled, and for many months they wandered. Fascinating story in and of itself, because their wanderings, their fleeing, their running paralleled, paralleled the path of the war. And uh, the Alter Rebbe escaped from Belarus into Russia, and ultimately, after months, ended up in a little town in the Kursk area known as Piena, a little town called Piena. On, the, on Tuesday, the 19th of Tevis, Yutas Tevis, the Alter Rebbe fell ill. And a few days later, Mitzoy Shabbos, Parsha Shmois, Chavdala Tevis, he passed away. His grandson, the Rebbe de Tzamach Tzedek, the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was present, during his passing, writes that it occurred which means approximately 10.30 p.m. Not exactly 10.30, but a little before 10.30. Around 10.25 p.m. Which, according to our calculations today, it was around four hours after Shabbos ended. His children describe in the introduction to the Shulchan Aruch how that night... The Rebbe David Mayriv made Havdola. 
B'dveikus neflo b'deyetzlula With tremendous ecstasy and oneness With God and with a very lucid and clear mind Following which he returned his soul To its maker and was interred the next day or the following day The Jewish cemetery in the Ukrainian city of Hadich Where many still go every year Especially Chavdala Tevis the Yartzet of the Alter Rebbe, to pray at the holy resting place of Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi. Exactly 50 years ago, at the 150th anniversary of the passing of the Alter Rebbe, Chavdal Tevis Tavshin Chav Gimel, 1962. The is the calendar then was like this year, like the original year of the Alter Rebbe's passing, where Chavdala Tevis is Mitzvah Shabbos. Shabbos is the 23rd of Tevis and Sunday is the 24th of Tevis. The Rebbe passed away on Mitzvah Shabbos after, a few hours after Shabbos ended. At 10.25 p.m., 50 years ago, at 10.25 p.m., the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the 7th Lubavitcher Rebbe, suddenly appeared downstairs in the main shul of 770 Eastern Park where the Chabad headquarters and sat down for a fabring and for a gathering. This was very unusual. The Rebbe would usually come into a fabring at 8.30 p.m. or in later years, 9.30 p.m. But 10.25 p.m., this was unusual. But there, there were those few who understood that this was the exact time when the Alter Rebbe returned his neshama, his soul, to Hashem. I wasn't born yet at the time, but I heard from a few people who were present. The Rebbe's face was unbelievably serious. And sat down, and this is how he opened the Fabrengen. He said, in the name of his father-in-law, the name of his father, the Rebbe Rashab, on the yard site of a tzaddik, the tzaddik is ma'ayri rachamim, the tzaddik arouses divine compassion, on all of the Hasidim, their wives and their children. However, when Hasidim come together on the day of the Yartzeit to study the teachings, to study the Torah of the person whose Yartzeit it is, together with unity and a fabrengen and a gathering, so this generates a greater flow of blessing and compassion where the Tzaddik, the Bala Ilula, generates and arouses even greater compassion on each one of them. By coming together to study his Torah, the Rebbe said, this is our way of giving a pidyon, a pidyon nefesh, to the Alter Rebbe. How do we give him a pidyon? A kvittel? By coming, to, coming together on his yard side to study, and to connect, and to unite, and to inspire, and strengthen each other. This is the kvittel that we give him. And immediately the Rebbe instructed that they sing the song of Avinu Malkeinu, one of the Alter Rebbe's legendary songs which he composed. And the crowd sung it with incredible emotion. Right after Avinu Malkeinu, the Rebbe instructed that they sing the Alter Rebbe's Nigan, the famous melody of four stanzas, the great melody of the Alter Rebbe in which he encapsulated and placed his great ideas of Hasidus Chabad known as the Alter Rebbe's Nigan, usually it's sung with a preparation, a melody before it. 
But then the Rebbe said right away to sing out the Rebbe's Nigin, and this song was sung as well with, with extraordinary uh, uh, ecstasy and emotion. And right after the Nigin of the Alter Rebbe, the Rebbe began a mimer. He began saying a discourse. But it wasn't just any discourse. It was one of those brief, fiery, passionate discourses that the Alter Rebbe said in the earlier years. Later he said more elaborate, developed maimarim discourses. But in the earlier years they were called maimarim ktsarim. And the Rebbe reviewed one of those maimarim. Quoting the, the statement of the Talmud, "Ain Maestrin Razi Torah El Lamisha Doyig Bekir El Lamisha Libay Doyig Bekir Boy." Our sages tell us in Masech Chagiga that we don't give over secrets of Torah only some, but somebody whose heart is is sick, sick with love. It was a very brief mimer, but the Rebbe's voice was from a different world, completely from a different world. Even today, you hear the recording, you can sense it. And then there were another few talks, another few sikhs. During that Fabreng in Metzai Shabbos, 50 years ago, on the 150th anniversary since Dr. Rebbe's passing. This is what inspired us to dedicate tonight and tomorrow, the 24th of Tebas, Dr. Rebbe's 200th yard site, to spend a day, a full day with Dr. Rebbe, learning his teachings, delving into his Torah, internalizing his thoughts and applying them to our lives. So we're going to begin with learning, with reviewing a mimer, a discourse of the Alter Rebbe. Following that, the next year is going to be given by a rabbi tonight, by Rabbi Reuven Wolf from Los Angeles, who's going to discuss the Alter Rebbe's contribution to the concept of divine providence. The Alter Rebbe's view on how to deal with people who hurt you. Who are you to blame? Following that, we will show a lecture I gave just a few weeks ago. At the Jewish students at Yale University about the teachings of the Alter Rebbe of Hasidus Chabad. And then tomorrow, throughout the entire day, here at the yeshiva.net, there will be lectures and classes and live webcasts in the Alter Rebbe's teachings. Tomorrow morning, we'll begin with learning Mishnayis. I'll be giving a class in Mishnayis, Brachas chapter 7, Perik Zion, which begins with the letter Shin, Schneir. That will be followed by a lecture by Rabbi Ben-Sian Krasnyansky from the Upper East Side of Manhattan who will discuss four revolutionary ideas of the Tanya, among many, but four revolutionary ideas of the Tanya, which will be followed by a lecture, by a class by Rabbi Yossi Paltiel about one of the great contributions of the Alter Rebbe to Kabbalah and Jewish philosophy, analyzing the Alter Rebbe's novel idea about air, about divine light, divine energy and its ramifications in the life of the Jew following that we turn to Miami for a live webcast with the Klerman Masifta, the high school in the yeshiva of Lubavitch in Miami Beach, Rabbi Ailey Smith, a teacher there and a dayan in the Besden of South Miami will be 
delivering a PowerPoint presentation about the development of halacha throughout the ages till the Alter Rebbe Shulchan Aruch. I will be sharing with the students there a few stories about the Alter Rebbe. And Rabbi Label Shapiro will teach the Alter Rebbe's Shulchan Aruch and show the novel approach of the Alter Rebbe in halacha, following which we will learn <coughs> an idea of hashkafa and chassidus in the, from the Alter Rebbe's teachings. And then we have three classes, in-depth classes on the Alter Rebbe's Shulchan Aruch. Rabbi Levi Garelik will discuss the Alter Rebbe's contribution to the concept of Shabbos and Shabbos Agadol. Rabbi Levi Weinberg will discuss the Alter Rebbe's novel idea in Amir Lenachri. When you have a Gentile working for you on Shabbos, dealing with the question of Shabbos is objective or subjective. And finally, Rabbi Yisrael Rubin from Albany, from Albany, New York, will be dealing with the Alter Rebbe's view on Birches HaTorah, the blessing we recite every morning before we study Torah, and his opinion that when we think Torah, you don't have to make a blessing for that. This will be tomorrow evening, and that will end uh, the part of the program. That will end the program here on the yeshiva.net. I welcome all of you who are here globally from around the world. I hope you tune in tonight, you tune in tomorrow at, for all of it or for some of it or for part of it to study the Torah, the extraordinary Torah, the life-transforming Torah of the Baal HaYilula of the Alter Rebbe. We will begin tonight's program of learning and inspiration with reviewing a mimer, a discourse that was said by the Alter Rebbe, and it's published in his work, Torah on Parshas Bereshis. As is customary when we review a Hasidic discourse, like by a bar mitzvah and other occasions, that a song precedes it in order to get us into the mental state and the proper consciousness to listen and absorb and internalize the messages, the truths conveyed in this discourse of Hasidus.
Loi koi veyoi sa adam levadoi eseloi ezer kinegdoi. The Torah says in the parish, the beginning of Parshas Beresh, is the beginning of the Torah, that after Hashem created Adam, Hashem said, It's not good for man to be alone, let me create for him a helper against him. Which the obvious question here is there is a blatant contradiction. If the woman is a helpmate for the man, so she's not against him. And if she's against him, then she's not a helper. Why does the Torah say, why does Hashem say, that it's not good for man to be alone? And therefore he went and he created the whole surgery, which ultimately created Chava, Adam's wife. And Hashem says, I want to make a help against him. Either she's a helpmate or she's against him. Explanation is the Pasuk says in Tehillim, Kishemesh umogin Hashem Elikim. Kishemesh umogin Havayelikim literally means that God the Lord is both a sun and a shield. He is the sun, He is the source of light, and He's also our protection, our shield. However, if we read the verse carefully, David HaMelech employs here two names of God. The name of Yudke Vovke and the name of Elikim. And he says, Kishemesh Umogin. Havaya Elikim. That the name of Hashem and the name of Elikim are a sun and a shield. And the explanation is that it's actually referring to two separate things. There is the sun and then there is the shield. And these are the two names. Havaya and Elikim. Yudke Vovke is the sun and Elikim is the shield. Meaning of this is the name of Hashem Yudke Vofke represents his power to create. Because the word Yudhe Vavhe comes from the word Hoiva or Yahava. He creates, he brings into being. So the name Havaya represents a reflection of divine energy and an expression of divine energy which becomes a source for the creation of the worlds. However, if this divine light would have been expressed in a conspicuous way when it created all of the worlds and it created all of existence, then there would never be created beings in the way that they are now, because the way that we are now, that we have an independent ego, and we feel ourselves as independent creatures divorced from Hashem, if the divine energy creating the worlds would have been revealed and expressed, there is no possibility that any creature would feel egotistical and self-contained and not part of Hashem because all of us would have been in a state of bitl b'metzius, which means we would have experienced ourselves only as a continuum of Hashem's reality because the truth is that kula kamei keloi chashivi how does Hashem look at the world from His perspective? From His perspective, the world is not a separate, independent thing. The whole world doesn't have value in His presence. The whole world is, is, is it's His energy. It's part of His light. It doesn't have a separate, a separate identity. The world is simply a, a little glimmer of His power, a little result of His, of his creative energy. So if the light that creates the worlds would have been revealed and conspicuous, 
So then we would have experienced ourselves the way Hashem experiences us. The way God experiences the world. We would have never felt ourselves as a yesh, as a separate identity. And because of that, Hashem creates a shield, a nartic, a seath, to cover up the sun, just like the sun has a seath, and a shield that covers it up, and it dilutes its intensity, because its light is so, its light and its warmth is so intense. So Hashem made a shield on the sun of Shem Havaya, of the name of Yud Kevavke, which is the creative power. He put a shield on it, and this is the name of Elikim. The name of Elikim represents God's power to conceal and eclipse the intense light and radiance of the divine so that it gives room for the emergence of a world that is self-contained and self-oriented, of a world that has an ego and of people and of creatures that feel themselves as an identity completely separate from God. And that's the name of Elikim. Which the word Elikim means a ruler. Elikim is a ruler, Shrara, because Ein Melech You cannot be a king without a nation, without a people. So, because Hashem wanted to be a king, He wanted to be a ruler. He wanted to have a relationship with people who are outside of Him. He wanted a relationship with otherness. Therefore, He employs the concept of Tzimtzum. The ability to eclipse his creative energy. And this is what the name Elikim represents, which allows for the consciousness of otherness, that we feel ourselves as separate entities divorced from God. Not only that, we may not even feel his existence. And this level, this reality is also called Shechina. Which Shechina comes from the words, Veshachanti Besoichav, I will dwell among them, because it's through this characteristic that Hashem can enclose Himself within created beings. But if there would be no restrictions and no concealments and no shield that would be blocking the light, if the light of the creative energy of the Divine would be revealed the way it is in its essence, without any concealment, there would be no way that the created creatures would be able to contain it and absorb it. As created beings, their entire existence would be redefined as they would melt away in oneness with God. They would forfeit any sense of separateness and ego in order for there to be Shechina, that He dwells within us and gives us power while we retain our structure and our psyche and our identity. It's only because the name Elikim, which blocks the name Havaya, so it's like the sun, which goes into the seat, and the seat blocks and dilutes and the intensity of the warmth of the sun, and therefore we could contain the light. Now in our sages, in the works of our sages, we have the concept called Golus HaShchina, the exile of the Shechina, which according to the above definition of what Shechina is, we'll be able to understand it. Gemara says at the end of Megillah, Golu Adam Shechina Imam, Golu L'Bavu Shechina Imam, the Jews were exiled to Edom, the Shechina comes with them. When they exiled to Babylonia, the Shechina comes with them. Wherever the Jewish people went into exile, the Shechina comes into them, comes with them. The deeper concept here is not just the literal meaning that God accompanies the Jews in exile, but there's also a deeper spiritual meaning. And that is the whole objective of why Hashem communicated His infinite divine energy in the shield of Shem which restricts the energy and conceals it and eclipses it. 
so that we should be able to be created as separate entities that have our own ego. We should feel ourselves as independent creatures. The reason is that Hashem caused us to become a yesh, to become egotistical, because He wanted that we should create bitul hayesh, that we should take our egos and surrender it to the ayin, to the source, to the true source of everything, to the divine. In other words, God suspends Himself in order to create us and allow room for our existence so that we should suspend our existence and create room for His existence. So Hashem concealed His light and He allowed a yesh to emerge so that the yesh now takes its identity and realigns itself with its true source and with the true essence which is godliness. And that's the whole reason why he restricted his energy, because he wanted that we should create the bitl hayash, the nullification of the yesh. Like the Pasik says, The legions of heaven prostrate themselves to you. Referring to the angels, all of the heavenly angels like Michal and Gavriel, even though they also have some sense of self, because they're created angels, but nonetheless they prostrate themselves to you. Because they recognize that you are their source. So the objective is that also humans, also beings on earth, who feel themselves completely as egotistical, should now take the yesh and realign it with the ayin, with the, with the source of the yesh, with the divine source. And this is the pleasure. This is the nachas roch. This is what gives Hashem pleasure. That there should be a yesh. There should be a person and there should be a world that perceives itself as self-contained. And this yes should now surrender itself. It should challenge itself. It should dedicate itself and it should realign itself with its source. And this is exactly, this is precisely what God desired with the whole drama of the creation of the world and for this objective. He allowed his godly energy to descend and travel through many layers of concealments and many layers of Hester of um, cover-ups to the point that the yesh, the ego of the world should emerge as the Pasuk says in Yeshaya Koyl HaNikra B'Shmi everything that is called by my name and for my honor I created and I formed it and I made it that there should be the bitul hayesh that we should come to recognize our source what is the concept of Golus HaShchina, of the exile of the Shechina? When we said that the ray of godliness that gets eclipsed is called Shechina. So when the Shechina comes down and is enclosed in the 70 spiritual ministers that govern the 70 nations to give them life. And they become completely egotistical and independent to the point of saying, let's parry, said, Leah, the river is mine and I created myself. And as the Gemara says at the end of the Menachas, but many nations say that God is the God of gods. He's God, but he's the God over gods. So this is the concept of Golos HaShchina. This is where the Shechina goes into exile. Why? Because the Shechina descended into our world to create us. But its objective is not fulfilled. Instead of creating us. So that we should then challenge ourselves and go back to our source. What happens is we actually retain the status quo so no bittel is achieved from this descent and this is the exact antithesis of the whole objective of creation and this is what's called Golos HaShchina that the Shchina is an exile meaning 
The ray of godliness came down. The source of all the worlds lowered itself, that it shouldn't be revealed. And it came down into the lowest levels, known as klipois, and chitzayinim, the shells and the external levels. And the whole reason was why? So that we should transform our realities. And when that doesn't happen, this energy is truly in exile. It's completely in exile, it's completely eclipsed, and it remains subjugated in a place that's absolutely antithetical to what it is and what it wants. Now the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, that enters into the world in a very eclipsed fashion, is also called Mara. As the Pasuk says about Moshe Rabbeinu ben Mara, a love, Esvada, I appear to him in a Mara which the word Mara actually means a mirror. And the reason it's associated with the word Mara and mirror is because when we take a look at a physical mirror, what's the function of a physical mirror? If you're looking straight in open air, you just see what's ahead of you. Even if you look through a window, so there's glass, but glass is transparent, so it allows you to see through it. It's see-through, or any material that's see-through. The concept of a mirror is that there's a piece of glass but the glass is not transparent because you cover the glass with a layer of silver and that layer of silver eclipses the glass and therefore it stops your vision and it does not allow your vision to extend beyond the glass. But what happens is because your vision is stopped, it's obstructed by the layer of silver that obstructs the glass. So what happens is the light of the vision bounces back, what's called Urchhoizer, the light that returns. There's two types of energy. There's Ur Yashar, direct energy, and Ur Chayzer, the light that bounces off and comes back. For example, when somebody throws a ball, so there's the momentum of the ball as a result of the energy that he invested in the throw. But then there's when the ball hits the wall, and the ball bounces back with a different type of intensity. That's the concept of Ur Chayzer. So when you have a mirror, that is, the glass is not see-through because it's covered with silver, so a person is looking at it. So what happens is the light, the vision, is obstructed by the silver, so it bounces back and it allows him to see himself and that which is behind him, which is what a mirror does. If there would be glass, you would see straight, you would see what is ahead of you, but you can't see yourself and certainly you can't see what's behind you and above you because the glass is covered by silver, so that creates an archaizer, a light that balances back, that your vision now goes back and you could see yourself, and you could see that which is behind you, which you could have never done without. However, the condition is that the glass has to be covered with a thin layer, a thin layer of silver, which is thin, and it allows you then to see, not what's ahead of you, but to see what's behind you, what's above you, what precedes you, what's before you, not what's lower and ahead of you. However, if you take the glass and you eclipse it, with a very dense or thick covering, like a wall or cement or concrete, etc., then you see nothing. You certainly don't see what's ahead of you and you don't see what's behind it. This is all a metaphor for the whole spiritual dynamic of existence. And that is that the name Havai is like a sun. And it radiates tremendous light and it comes down with its full intensity of divine energy to create the world. That's what creates the world. And then you have the name of Elikim, which represents Hashem's Malchus, Hashem's quality of rulership, of being a king, which requires there to be a nation that's separate from Him. And therefore, Shem Elikim obstructs 
the flow of Shema Avaya. It creates a symptom, it creates restrictions, it creates concealments. And in those concealments, the divine energy of Avaya becomes concealed. So that it doesn't extend any further. It doesn't get revealed, it's blocked. The light is blocked. And this blockage happens, so to speak, in the entry to the worlds. Every world is a different blockage. Until it hits this world, it is a much thicker blockage. And the light comes and it's blocked and it doesn't go through. And therefore we don't feel the light because there's a blockage. It's not like a window of glass which allows the light to come through. But there's a blockage that blocks the light of Hashem. And therefore the world does not experience His presence. And the world does not experience His infinity. And therefore we don't feel ourselves as He sees us. We don't view ourselves from His perspective. We view ourselves from our perspective. And this is like the concept of the blockage of the mirror, which doesn't allow the light to extend. However, the value of this is just like by a mirror. The light doesn't extend this way. But because the light of your eyes and your vision balances back, it creates an light that returns, which allows you to see yourself, and allows you to see even that which is behind you. So this is also what happens in the story of existence. That the ray of Shema Vaya comes down, and Elikim blocks it like the mirror, but this creates this tension and this collision between the light of the divine and the blockage, creates an Urchhaizen. It creates a new momentum, a new energy, because the light that bounces back is far more intense and far stronger than the light that travels directly to its destination. Because the light that bounces back and it carries the momentum from the opposition, so the opposition, the blockage, creates a momentum, and creates an intensity, and it becomes a catalyst and a springboard, for a lot, for a greater light, and for a deeper light, and for more intense light, and that's why physically, as a result of the mirror, you can see yourself, the way you never saw yourself before, and you can see that which is above you, that which is behind you, which spiritually, psychologically represents, that which is deeper than you, and above you. And that's what the Apostle says, Eishas teres And that the woman of valor becomes the crown of her husband. The light of the sun will be like the, the light of the moon will be like the light of the sun, just like the mirror. As a result of the blockage, which blocks the extension of light. So there's a, a new light that returns and allows you to see behind you a very far distance. The same is true spiritually. When shame avaya hits shame alikim and gets blocked, it creates a new light that allows you to go to much deeper places and allows you to have even greater vision. Because as a result of the concealment of shame avaya, a new momentum and a new energy is unleashed and it allows a person to experience the reality of truth even in a deeper way than without the block. This is the deeper meaning of what the Gemara says in Ksuvus. That's Samachal. On the Pasuk, Vihi, Ba'ulaz, Ba'al, Ba'liyos, Sonshol, Ba'al, Oyloi, Ma'ivene, Yeradisimai. And the Gemara says that when the, 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 the Ba'ulaz, Ba'al, that she, the woman, goes up together with the husband, but she doesn't go down together with the husband, meaning if his standards are higher than hers as far as living expenses and living conditions, he can say to her, these are not your standards and therefore I'm not going to support you on this level. No. 
he has to support her according to his standards, but it doesn't work the other way, meaning if his standards are degraded for whatever reason, but her standards are higher, he cannot demand from her to go down with him. She goes up with him, she never goes down with him. She always goes up. She cannot go down with him. If he's up, she goes up with him, and if he's down, if she, it's not her level, she's on a higher level, she stays up. Which this is legally, halachically, and the, the, in, the, in the fashion of how a marriage takes place according to Jewish law. Spiritually it means that we have the two forces. The man and the woman represents Havayen Elikim. So we say that she goes up with him and she doesn't go down with him. Havayen goes down. Havayen goes down. But uh, Elikim doesn't go down with him because if she would go down with him, that would be already Golus Hashim. His job, Havai, is to go down. The job of Elikim is now to go up, in other words, to create the blockage, which creates the frustration, which allows now the light to go back up, to bounce back up Urchhoizen. In a person's life, the fact that we have concealments and obstacles and challenges, and there's no clarity and there's no transparency of the divine light, because the divine light is blocked by the human body and by the crudeness of the human body, which this is all as a result of Shem Alekim, we don't go down with it. On the contrary, for us, this is supposed to create the tension and the collision that becomes a catalyst and a springboard for a much deeper awareness and a much deeper clarity and a much deeper vision. This is the meaning of the Pasuk and Shir Hashir. That the groom talks about the beautiful bride and says, my dove is in the clefts of the rack, in the hidden steps. My dove is hiding, and the groom pleads and says, Show me your countenance, let me hear your voice, because your voice is sweet and your countenance is beautiful, but the word that's used is, Show me your mirror, that's the word that's used. Because we're talking about the fact, that a neshama comes into a body, and the body completely eclipses the presence of the soul. That the person does not feel his inner purity, and his inner holiness, and his inner godliness, and his inner majesty, and his inner nobility. The physical crude body completely eclipses, and overwhelms, and consumes, and traps, and imprisons the soul. And it gets blocked. So on this, Hashem tells the soul, Show me the mirror. The whole reason that there's a blockage is you read the The blockage is simply that the soul and the inner energy of the person should go up. No matter that from the collision, from the fact that it hits and it confronts an opposition, it should go back to be re-included in divine light in yet a deeper and a higher fashion. This is the meaning of what the Apostle says in Bereshis. That Hashem Eloikim, using both names, made for Adam and his wife, leather shirts, leather clothes, and he dressed them. In other words, he created a dress, a garment that eclipses, because that's what a garment does. A garment eclipses a person's body. So Hashem makes for Adam and his wife Kosnasar. We all have garments that eclipse our inner energy, but the point is that as a result of the striking against the garment that eclipses us, we have the Eur the light that balances back and goes up from the fact that it hit the bottom, and now it goes back up, 
and this creates a whole new light and a whole new energy, and this is the deeper meaning of loy toybe yoisa adam levad. Hashem says it's not good for a man to be alone. Let me make a help against him. The spiritual meaning of this is Hayois Adam Levadai is Adam who's Adam? Adam is Adam Ha'alyan, the supernal man. As the Pasik says in Yecheskel, there's Adam Ha'alyan Sha'al Hakisek. There's the Kisei, I cover the throne, and on top of the throne there's Adam Ha'alyan, the higher man. The divine persona, which is of course the source of man down here below. This is called Adam Ha'alyan, Allah Kisei, the Muskamari Adam. Naturally, this Adam is Levadai, this Adam is alone. Einoid Muvadai, there's nothing but Hashem. This Adam is Levada. He's alone and there's nothing else because there's no reality outside of Hashem. The only existence and the only true reality is God. And outside of Him there's nothing else. And this is the way it should have been that the divine presence and energy should be revealed and expressed and it's obvious that there's nothing outside of Him. And even if He creates a world, it's obvious that the whole world is completely one with Him and part of Him and just a reflection of Him and a continuation of Him just like it is from His perspective. What we call Yehudilah, the higher level of unity. When you look at the cosmos from the divine perspective, you don't see a separate being and a separate ego. You see it from a divine perspective. And divinity is everywhere and it includes everything. And everything is part of his reality and submerged in his reality. And there's nothing outside of it. There's nothing that occupies its own space. So naturally it should have been Heyoisa Adam Levade. Ha Adam, the Adam, Adam Ha'elyon should have been alone. Enoid Mulvade and the whole world completely one and nullified within him as part of his reality. This comes Hashem and says, Although this is the natural state. It's not good for Adam Elyon to be Levadoi. I'm going to help myself. I'm going to help the Adam. How can I By creating an opposition. Because sometimes the greatest help you can give the Adam is by creating a force that opposes him. The fact that there is a force that opposes him and challenges him, this becomes the greatest help for him. And this is what he says, that the greatest help for Havaya, for Adam, is from Kenegde, from the opposition, the fact that there's a tzimtzum, there's a restriction. And there are many layers of concealment that completely cover up and eclipse and conceal the divine energy and do not allow the pure revelation of divine energy, which this is what allows for the creation of the body, this is what allows for the creation of the animal soul, who are in a state of yesh, of egotism, and completely separate because the body feels itself as a material, narcissistic, self-contained being. The animal consciousness that exists within every single one of us is like a beast that's focused completely on self-preservation and self-gratification, and all of its life is about self fulfillment and it's a self-oriented creature, it's a self-contained creature and that's how we feel ourselves, we feel ourselves in our animal consciousness as completely focused on self-preservation this comes only because the divine energy that's infusing life into the body and into the animal soul is concealed on this Hashem says from this opposition from this concealment that opposes the divine light, from this will be the greatest help. Why? Because by this confrontation, and from this collision, and from this obstacle, we create the mirror, the mara, hareni es marayat, the oichhoizer, 
the new light that is created from the tension that comes between heaven and earth and from the tension that comes between soul and body and from the tension between the spiritual and the physical and from the tension between the transcendental and the earthly and the tension that comes between man's inner idealism and man's inner selfishness and that tension when it's exploited right, creates the greatest spiritual connection and the greatest spiritual force and the greatest ecstasy because the light that comes, the the light that returns from balancing off is a much greater light than the light that would just be revealed directly without any opposition. That's the meaning of the Pasuk. Tzorah says, Tzchayk asali alikim, she named her son Yitzchak. Because Elikim made us laugh, the, the emphasis on the word is Elikim. That the main laughter, the main joy comes from the name Elikim. Because the greatest pleasure and joy and laughter comes from the concealment. When you don't surrender to the concealment, when you don't take the concealment seriously, when you don't become a victim of the concealment, but you see the concealment simply as a springboard, as a catalyst to generate the greatest growth of human potential and spiritual potential, so then schoik asali elikim, elikim makes me laugh like nothing else. Havaya could not generate that joy, that pleasure, that laughter. Elikim is the one that generates that laughter when elikim doesn't cause galos hashchina. But when we exploit the obstacle to become a springboard for growth, this becomes the greatest schoik, and that's why we say that Mu'asid Lavi in the future, this will be the greatest pleasure. Yisma Hashem b'masav. The joy of Hashem comes from, from the name Alekim, because this allows for a revelation that's even beyond Shem Havaya. This is the Urchaizer, as the Pasuk says in the Shira, Ad Yaver Amcha Havaya, till your nation passes. It literally means Ad Yaver Amcha Hashem. Till your nation of God passes, the spiritual meaning is that Yaver Am Chashem, we will Yaver, we will pass above the name Havaya through the name of Lekim. And this is the concept what the Pasuk says in Yermia about a desert, Yashav Adam Sham, a place where man has not dwelled, which spiritually means there's a place that's beyond Adam. Adam is Adam Ha'elyon Ha'yoysa, Adam Levada Shem Havaya. And there's a place that man does not dwell there, and that's the revelation that happens precisely through Shem Lekim. Aishas Chayel Ateres Baila through the woman who opposes the husband. Ezer Kenegda and she becomes the crown of her husband. She brings out the best in her husband. Aishas Chayel Ateres Baila. She brings out the best in him and allows him to reach a level that he could not reach on his own, like it is spiritually that through Elikim, Havaya reaches a much deeper place. In other words, there's a much deeper revelation of godliness than there would have been if there would be no concealment and God would just allow himself to reveal himself without a concealment. And that's why when Adam and Chava are created, they're created... They're created in a way of Ezer Kenegdai, that there is an opposition, and that opposition creates the deepest help. After the sin of Adam and Chava, the Pasuk says, Kosnus that Hashem made for them Kosnus He made for them tunics of leather, and the, 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 the spelling is Ur with an ayin. Leather, Ur, fur, the hide of an animal, which is called Ur with an ayin. Because this is the difference between before the sin and after the sin. Before the sin, there was also a concealment. Because they were created beings, and every created being is a product of concealment. But then, the concealment was very thin. It's like when the glass has a layer that covers it, but it's a very, very thin layer. 
It says, He was in the Garden of Eden, so the layer was very thin, the concealment was very thin. But after they sinned from the Eitzadas, now the Kinegdoi became much more intense and much more ferocious and much more serious. There became a much bigger blockage. This is the concept called Klipas Neiga, that there's a shell, there's a husk that blocks the divine energy, and this is called Kosnas Oyr, tunics of Oyr, tunics of leather of the hide of the skin. The connection to Oyr is because the main source from which all of the external forces in this world, all the clippers in this world, in other words, all the realities that don't recognize holiness and godliness, so they always receive their nurture through the Oyr, through the skin, because they receive their nurture through here, and the main place from where the hair grows is on the skin. Like for the Mishnah, it says by Paraduma. The skin has its little holes from which the, the hair grows. Like it says by Paraduma, that if there were two hairs in one source, in one, in one hole, it disqualifies the red heifer. And in the Sechter Chulin in Perikoyevaroite, we talk about Nekev Sheinad Yoyevaroite. A uh, hole on which the, the ink does not pass, and therefore the kosnus oil represents a, a strong concealment, a strong blockage from where the grows here, from where the clippers receive their nurture, their energy, because the light is blocked very strongly, and this happens after Adam and Chava eat from the tree of knowledge. And that's why all of Hashem's service is called Avaidas Hashem, serving Hashem. What does the word Avaida mean? The word Avaida means work, service, but particularly it comes from the word Ibud Oiris, which is a very difficult labor of tanning. When you take the skin of an animal, the fur of an animal, and you want to make it into leather, it's an excruciating work of taking the skin of the animal and turning it into leather that can be used. This is called ibud oiris, working out the leather. And this is what the function of a person is to be an oivad alikim. What does it mean an oivad alikim? Why do we call it oivad alikim? You have to work with alikim to fix the concealment of alikim, to fix the concealment of the oir, which comes from shem alikim, because alikim represents God's ability to block and conceal his energy. And that allows for there to be the skin that covers up Adam and Chava and covers up the energy and allows for here, which here has very little energy, which is why when you cut here, there's no pain because there's no nerves in here. So it's not painful to cut here because there's no energy and there's no real life source. It's not like cutting, God forbid, a piece of skin or another limb. And this represents that the divine energy that comes through here is very restricted, it's very minute, and that's why there can be clippers, there can be shells, there can be husks, there can be chitzayim that don't feel the divine presence. Why don't they feel the divine presence because there is complete concealment to a level of here. What's an Ayved Aleikim? You work with the hide. You work with the skin. You work with the concealment. You work with it. In other words, you realize that it's only a concealment that's there to be exploited in order to make you grow much more because really the only reality is divine energy and everything is holy and everything is part of divine energy. There's just a concealment and the whole reason of the concealment is show me your true colors, show me your true depth through the mirror. And this is what an Oyved Alekim is. You work with the height, which comes from Shem Alekim to transform darkness into light. And that's why it says, Vayas Hashem Alekim La'adam Suddenly both names are used, Hashem and Alekim, because the whole concept of Kosnas Oyr, of garments that eclipse 
the inner energy comes from the combination of Hashem and Elikim, and the two names also relate to the fact that it's Adam and Chava, man and his wife, Ezer Kenegda, which these are the two names of Avaya and Elikim, and this explains what the Medrash says, and it's brought in Kabbalah, that Chanoich, the great Tzadik Chanoich, was Toifer Menolim, he used to make shoes. He was a person who sewed shoes, which apparently, this, what does this mean? But now we understand the concept. What does it mean he sewed shoes? He was a toifer menolim. What it means is that the shoe, which comes from leather, oh, represents the concealment. The oil represents the concealment. And since Adam and Chava were dressed with Kosnasar, what does it mean, Kosnasar? That they were given this concealment, especially after the sin. So Chanoich, his job was Toifim and Alamin. After the oil, after the leather is fixed and repaired through the Kosnasar of Adam and Chava, so Chanoich turned them into shoes. Which is what Chanoich was known as a tzaddik. In other words, Chanoich took it and he turned it into something that serves a productive purpose. He took the oid and he worked it out to the point that it became a shoe, which is the concept of an oividalikim. Even if Adam would have not sinned, and therefore there would have not been klipas noiga, he would have not worn kosnas or with an ayin. He would have had kosnas or with an aleph, as the Medrash says that in the Sefer Torah of Reb Meir. They found kosnas or with an aleph. Tunics of light, not tunics of leather. So there wouldn't have been klipas naigah. Still there would be an ezer kenegdeh. Because ezer kenegdeh is before they sinned. But the kenegdeh would have been much more subtle, much more refined. There would have been an opposition, but much more refined. What would have been the opposition? The fact that between every single world that Hashem creates, and the many series of spiritual worlds that He creates, there's something called a parsa. A parsa means a partition. Between one world and another world is a partition. Just like when you have light in one room that comes in from the sun. And then you have a curtain. So the light that goes through the curtain and comes to the other side of the curtain is already a very different quality of light because it went through the partition. Between each world is a parasite, there's a partition which dilutes and alters the state of divine energy so that the consciousness in the lower world is completely different than the consciousness in the higher world. In the higher world there's much more awareness of the divine presence, but be- before it goes into the next world, it goes through a parsa. It goes through a spiritual partition, a spiritual curtain, which alters the divine energy so that the product of the next world is a different product. The consciousness is different, and therefore the creations of the next world are different. And this is the series of all the worlds in Kabbalah and Hasidus. Between each world is a parsa partition that blocks the world. And the same is true by a person, just like a person also has that partition which is called the diaphragm, the chatzar, the chatzar hakavi, which separates the higher part of the person and the lower part of the person because the unique qualities that make us human, our mind and our heart and our higher senses are always above the partition. And the partition creates a paradigm shift, that that which is below the partition is not of the same essence and of the same caliber of the faculties that are above the diaphragm, this is because spiritually this is the way Hashem creates all the worlds, because everything in the biological structure of a person evolves from the spiritual system of the cosmos, because the human being is a microcosm which contains the whole world, so that which is in the world is also reflected in every person there's a diaphragm in each between each world, which I'll call 
causes the light of the lower world to be of a different essence and a different caliber and a different quality, which makes it a different world with a different level of sensitivity, which is more numb, which is more weak, which is more dark, lower and lower and lower until we hit the partition that blocks the energy into this physical world, our world, in which godliness is completely eclipsed and almost unnoticed. And the same is true even in holiness, for example, between the world of Atsilis, which is the highest world, and the world of Bria, which are both holy worlds, there's still a major partition. And therefore, even if Adam and Chava would have not sinned, there would have still been the opposition. Azer connected, but what type of opposition? Not the thick opposition of Klippa, of Klippas Neuga, which is also which is also not the thickest opposition. But Klippas Naiga is still a translucent shell, but it's a husk. There would have been higher forms of concealment, more subtle forms of concealment, but still concealment. And Adam's job would have been to elevate that which goes through the partition. The light gets blocked in the partition, and it creates a new world and elevated back to its source in the Archeiser. And this is what God's intention was when he created the world before Adam's sin. And he said, Ezer Kenegda. Once he sinned, now the connective becomes much stronger and now the sublimation is much more challenging but also much more rewarding because now you have to deal with real klipas. Once they partook from the tree of knowledge in violation of God's will, which the tree of knowledge represents where there's a husk that conceals godliness. So now there's a whole new blockage created in our system and created in our world that we have to deal with and this is the blockage called klipas. And that's why he expelled Adam from Ganeden after the Eitzadas. This wasn't just a punishment of revenge, not at all. Because now Adam's responsibility is he has to go out of paradise. And he has to deal with more serious levels of concealments and blockages in order to sublimate it. And in order to bring back the light back to its source and reach even a deeper place. He cannot do this in Ganeden. So Hashem says now it's time to leave Ganeden. And yet, even Klippas Neuga is still like a mirror. It's considered a very thin layer, which allows you to see. But sometimes you have a stone, it's not silver anymore, it's stone, now you can't see anything. And this represents not Klippas Neuga, which means a translucent shell, but a husk that's completely opaque, just like you have in different fruits. A fruit has a shell, but sometimes from the shell you could see that there's a fruit inside, and sometimes like by a walnut, there's such a thick shell that you don't even see the fruit inside. And the same is true in our world. There is a blockage that conceals divine energy, but it's called klipas neither, which means it's a translucent shell. But then you have a shell that's so opaque it completely conceals godliness, you can't even extract the light. This is not a mirror anymore. This is when the window is covered up with concrete or cement, and you can't see anything. You can't see ahead of you, and you can't see behind you. This is a whole different experience. Klipas Neiga is a combination of Toiv and Ra. And this is what gives life to all permissible things. All food that is permissible, all animals that are permissible, all objects and actions that are permissible receive their energy from Klipas Neiga. And that's why it's called Mutter, which Mutter in Hebrew means untied. And Usr means tied because that which makes something forbidden or permissible, it's not just a state of law. Permissible and forbidden. It's a spiritual concept. When something is permissible, it means that this object, even though the divine energy is concealed there, but it can be extracted. It can be revealed. It can be brought back to its source. The inner spirituality can be revealed. When something is forbidden and it's off limits, it's because the divine energy is completely tied. 
It's also in the hands of the clippers and it can't be extracted and therefore you cannot bring out the good as an Eur as a light that returns from the clipper and therefore it's off limits to the Jew and we say this act is forbidden and this act is permissible. According to all of this we'll understand why in the Sheva Brachas that we do for Chas, we say the blessings that we say for Chasanam and Kalos for grooms and brides. So we have the blessing Sameach to Samach Reim Ahuvim, and we finish off the blessing Baruch Ata Hashem Sameach Chasan VeKala. God brings joy to the Chasan and the Kala. But the last blessing, the Bracha, when we talk about the future, Meheir Yishama Bariyu the Bechutzis Yerushalayim Kol Chasan VeKosam Kol Chasan VeKol Kala, etc. We finish off the blessing Baruch Ata Hashem Sameach Chasan Im HaKala. God brings joy to the Groom with the bride. What's the difference? The first blessing you say, Hashem brings joy to the groom and the bride. The last blessing you say, with the bride. The reason is, the kala represents malchus. The bride represents chava, represents shame, elikim, which is the challenge for the masculine energy like havaya is challenged by elikim, which blocks it. The same is in a marriage. The chosen is representing havaya and elikim is represented by the kala, which is malchus, which blocks the havaya. Initially, Initially, she absorbs and receives all the light from the chasen, which comes from the masculine world into the feminine world. It comes from the masculine world from the chasen into the kala. And that's why we say Hashem gives joy to chasen and the kala, first the chasen and the kala, because the energy comes from the chasen and the chasen gives it to the kala. But then what happens is, Mesamea chasen im ha He gives joy to the chasen with the kala. In other words, the main joy is the kala, and then the kala brings joy to the chasen. It's not and then chasen the kala, it's once the kala has simcha, now the chasen goes along on the ride. In other words, that through the kala the chasen becomes joyous. This is the simcha that comes to the chasen because he's with the kala. Because since she is kenegdoi, so she creates a true help. And she brings out a whole new light in him that could not be experienced otherwise. Because there's a kenegdoi, it allows him to go to a much deeper place just as it is spiritually. That through malchus, through elikim. So the simchat of the chasen happens with and through the kala because he's with the kala and that's why it says the woman of valor becomes a crown for her husband in other words superior to her husband because it's as a result of this opposition as a result of this collision a result of this encounter and confrontation that when they both realize that the purpose here is not opposition the purpose here is not concealment the purpose here is for each one to reach their ultimate potential. That shame havaya will only be revealed in a much deeper way through shame alikim. And shame alikim is not here to conceal on the contrary, but rather to bring out the real unity and synchronization that exists in them. So through her, she brings a whole new level of joy to the chasen, and therefore the woman of valor is a crown for her husband.
Ondan sonra da altın rebisini
Chom Dalet Hav is the yard site of the Altarebbe. On a personal note, I owe a tremendous uh, debt of gratitude to the Altarebbe. I didn't grow up uh, in, with Hasidus Chabad, although I do come from a Hasidish family, uh, but I didn't have any knowledge of Hasidus and Hasidus Chabad. Um, when I was 13 years old, I can't explain why, I had a very strong desire for, for inner knowledge, for deeper knowledge, for the esoteric, for that which is beyond the, the outer body of Torah. Uh, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I tried to quench my thirst by learning all the svarim that were available to me then, um, which weren't the ordinary svarim of Bahram usually learning yeshivas. I learned all the Musa svarim, works on ethics, and I learned the svarim from uh, Mahshava, Maral, as much as a 13-year-old can understand Maral. And I learned uh, different Hasidic svarim of Mahshava, Shemuel, Svasem, and different, different works. And, but I didn't quench my, my thirst, it didn't satiate me. I, I knew, I didn't really know Tanya, I heard the name Tanya, but I never knew that the, that the profundity, the depth, and this is the, the gateway to this uh, endless divine knowledge called Hasidus Kabbalah. And when I was 17 years old and I was learning in the Lithuanian yeshiva, a friend of mine um, invited me to come with him, I should say rather, slept me to come with him for Shabbos to Kfar Chabad. And over there, I never did to hear the first Shir Chassidus ever, from, uh, and that was an outlet with, by Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Zalman Gavin. And I remember 20 minutes into the minor, into the discourse that we were learning, I was in sheer bliss and in ecstasy. I was ready to, I was literally jumping out of my skin and ready to scream and holler, wow, this is unbelievable. And uh, since then I've been learning Chassidus, and uh, I haven't yet entered even into the corridor of the vast world of Chassidus that there is, but I did dedicate my life in the last couple of years to the spreading of Chassidus and to try to share that special gift that was given to me with as many people as I can. Um, today I would like to present to you a thought in the book of Tanya, uh, which I think is very revolutionary. Um, really the entire book of of Tanya is a revolutionary book. Uh, I don't know of any Sefer, not that I learned that many Svarim, but I don't know of any Sefer in the world that revolutionizes the reader to that degree like the book of Tanya. Every parak, every parak is a revolutionary idea. It's transformative. Changes our entire outlook upside down, inside out. It's incredible. Um, yet I've chosen this particular paragraph. We have to choose something, and this is very practical. And I think uh, comes very in handy in everyday life, and something that, that we can only implement and integrate it into our psyche, into our, into our lives. We will be much happier people and live a healthier life, both physically and spiritually. So this is in the end of chapter 12, Perikid Bays, the last couple of lines of the Perik. Um, we human beings are social beings, and we're constantly having interaction with other people. We don't live in isolation. And in the course of these many, many interactions, it's inevitable that we will not get hurt, that someone will step on our toes, someone will offend us, someone will insult us intentionally, unintentionally, these things happen all the time. And the question is, how do we react? What's our feeling? So first, of course there is the impulsive, natural react, 
uh, reaction in which we want to lash out to the other person. We're going to teach them a lesson. What do you mean? You slap me, I'm going to knock your teeth out. You uh, insulted me, I'm going to uh, embarrass you in public. You're never going to want to show your face in this community ever again. You cheated me, I'm going to put you out of business. That's the natural reaction of a person. Well, that is forbidden in the Torah. That's, uh, the Torah says, Lord Sikha. But if we can't do that, at least a person feels, I, have, I bear the right to have resentment. I'm entitled to my anger to feel enraged against you until you apologize, or maybe even after you apologize, but at least until you apologize. Let's see how the altar in Tanya recommends and uh, guides us in terms of our reaction to other people when they have hurt us, in small things and in bigger things. So, over here the altar is addressing the person known as the top of the Bainani. I'm sure in the course of the day the Bainani will be brought up. Uh, but just briefly, the Bainani is the perfect person that everybody can aspire to. The tzaddik is someone who is uh, beyond the aspirations of ordinary people. The tzaddik is an extraordinary superhuman being. Not everybody has the capacity to be a tzaddik. But bainani is something that we can all achieve. And therefore, the model of the bainani is something that we all, all should follow. So when we see how the bainani reacts to an insult, to a pain, or any kind of aggravation, suffering that they suffer from someone else, we know that's the path we need to follow. So he said like this, I'm reading nine lines from the end of page 34. Now, so it is also in matters between a person and his fellow. Instantly, when it, when it, when it arouses or arises, from the heart to the person's brain, any type of animosity, or any kind of jealousy, or anger, or a grudge, and the like. Obviously, it's because someone did something to you deserving this kind of a reaction. You have an animosity. He's talking about resentment of rage and feeling of a strong uh, hatred to another individual. So what happens when those feelings, when the emotion is erupting and it's gushing forth all this negative energy from your heart because your heart is bleeding, because your heart is hurt. Someone maliciously offended you and it hurts so much and you're feeling so enraged. And those feelings are rising from your heart and is seeking to go into your mind so that you should contemplate it. So what the Bainani does is he rejects that, that thought immediately. Ainam the doesn't receive them, doesn't accept them at all. The boys are in his brain, the and in his will. To willfully accept those thoughts and further them. The Adarabin, on the contrary, this person has such extraordinary self-control that the mind is able to dominate and rule over the spirit of the heart, that impure feeling that's in the heart. Lastly, to do a hepachmanish, the exact opposite. Not only am I going to lash out and teach the person a lesson, but you do the exact opposite. And what is that? So the Rebbe Dalton ever says, it's nagyakhaleh, right? To conduct yourself with your fellow, but midas chesed, with the attribute of kindness. It means you're going to be doing kindness. You're going to return kindness for that, for that pain that they caused. But not only a kindness, which is more of a behavioral thing. The Altarebbe adds, the Chibu Yaseidamudas Loi, and added affection, extra love, you're going to display to this person. Which is taking it to home. Not only kindness. Kindness sometimes you can do, it's an external thing. Even your heart is not there. You can, you can be angry at your boss and you can open the door for them when they're carrying the coffee. Right? And you can be muttering at the same time under your breath. So that's a kindness. But he's talking over here about feeling love, 
extra love you're going to show loving care and kindness to this individual that has aggravated you and going to cause you so much pain. Well, these women are going to suffer from them to the very extreme limits not to be angry at them. And definitely not to pay them back as they would deserve. And not to do that. To respond and to bestow to those that are guilty favors. You can do extra favors for this individual that has brought you such harm. The Zohar says that that's what we're supposed to learn how Yosef treated the brothers. Now, it goes without saying, and it's, it's a little difficult to clearly define this, but this must be said, that when a person is in a continuous abusive relationship, if a husband is beating his wife, or, or someone is uh, the recipient of extreme verbal abuse, or any other kind of serious abuse, um, the alphabet is not saying just lay back and uh, accept it all and enable this to continue. Of course, in those situations, not to make the mistake, Hasbashon, for the class today, that this is what the Altarev is expecting you to do. Uh, of course, in those situations, you have to seek counsel and um, follow the guidance of a mashpia, a mentor, a rabbi. It should be, a, however, an empathetic rabbi, a caring rabbi, who can really sense and feel, feel what you're going through. And they will advise how to react to this situation. And that's, of course, um, uh, not what he is talking about over here. He's talking about over here the ordinary uh, frustration, the ordinary uh, things that happen in our lives when either family members, neighbors, uh, business associates, friends, uh, or the like, or even spouse, spouses, uh, cause aggravation. Uh, sometimes, sometimes in a continuous way. So, how is one to react in this situation? He says, with extra kindness and love. Meaning the very negative act itself should provoke extra kindness and more love. Strange reaction. But the Rebbe says this is what we're supposed to do. And he brings that we're supposed to learn from Yosef. Well, Yosef is a perfect example of it. If ever there was a person that was entitled to rage and resentment, it was Yosef. Yosef suffered horribly from the brothers. I mean, these are his brothers. And they maliciously were ready to kill him. They stripped him naked and threw him into a pit of snakes and scorpions. What kind of dread and fear and what kind of cruelty is that? And then they took him out and sold him as a slave, which in many ways were worse than, worse than that. And he would have been separated and disconnected from the family forever and ever. That meant the end to Yosef's life, because there's no real slave ever ran away from him. You can imagine what kind of feelings Yosef can harbor against his brothers. So later when he meets up with them, and now he's in control, and there it is, at his mercy, he doesn't repay them, he doesn't harm them. Instead, he unbelievably acts in such nobility and in such elegance to his brothers. He first of all supports them, he uh, takes care of them and their families, he gives them the most beautiful place in the land to live in, uh, and he soothes them. He doesn't want them to feel the mental anguish and turmoil, and he explains to them how everything was for the good. He's so caring and so loving to his brothers. But we can say, well, that's Yosef. Yosef is a tzaddik. If anybody has a title, have tzaddik, it's Yosef a tzaddik. But we're talking about a regular people. So the Zohar says that everybody is supposed to follow Yosef's example and live like Yosef. Yosef is the example. We're supposed to be follow Yosef's example. 
Um, the Zohar actually brings a very interesting story. It's worthy to, to quote. This is the Zohar in the Kedashas by Gidashas. In Parshat, in Sefer Duration, Dafnation, Aleph in the Zohar. So the Zohar tells a story like this that Adam, one of the sages of the Zohar, one of the mystics of the times, was standing by the gate of the city of Lud. So I think it was the city of Lud, by the entranceway. And he observed this fellow um, passing by, a traveler, and the guy was very tired. He was looking for a place that he could rest. And off to the side was a mound, a high, and it seemed to be like uh, the mound was quite steep. And on the top of the mountain was this gazebo. So this guy climbs up the, the, this hill or this mound, and he goes into the gazebo, and he sits down to rest. He moves his, uh, his peckle, his backpack, and he sits down, and he falls asleep. And Rabbi sees that moments later, a poison, a venomous snake, comes um, up towards the, this person and is ready to, to, to deliver a, a devastating sting. At the last moment, Mamash, the moment before, a piece of uh, branch of a tree falls down on the snake and it kills the snake, or according to another interpretation, it was an animal that came and killed the snake. This guy, so the Bible sees an open miracle, Mamash, in front of his eyes. This guy's life was saved. He was, he was, he was inches from death. He was seconds from death. So Rabbi continues watching. He sees the guy, then coming down to him, and he sleeps and he wakes up. And he sees a dead snake next to him, so he thinks, you know, I better get out of here. He takes his, his uh, package and he starts uh, going down the steep slope. He gets down to the bottom, and at that moment, the gazebo collapses on itself and the whole thing comes crashing down and it topples down. And, uh, and it was clear that had this person still been in the gazebo, he would have probably been killed or at best be severely injured. So Rabbi is completely baffled about this guy who's rolling in miracles. So Rabbi comes running over to him and Rabbi says, tell me, you must be a very special individual that so many miracles happen. Tell me who you are, what do you do, what are your merits? And the guy says, I'm a simple person, not much. But he said, if anything, I can tell you one thing that I think is maybe unique. He says, I never bear any anger in my heart against anybody. If anybody offends me, if anybody does me, any, anybody wrongs me, I forgive them immediately. And if I can't bring myself for an immediate forgiveness, because it was just too too painful, then I don't go to sleep at night until I forgive them. And not only that, but from that day on, I am always seeking to do extra favors for this individual. Whether they apologize or they didn't apologize, but I'm always taking care of them. When Rabbi heard that, he starts weeping and he says, Wow, what a person. Even greater than Yosef, because Yosef at least is doing it to his brothers. But this person does this act this way to strength. So the Zohar says we're supposed to learn this way. Interesting, if you look at the Zohar, the Zohar says this is the way Tzadikim act. The Alter Rebbe in Tanya recommends this for people that are less than Tzadikim, for Bainanim, for every person. This is the reaction. The question over here is, however, uh, why? What, what, is the, what, is, what is the reasoning for that? I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, don't, don't repay an eye for an eye. Don't hurt the other person. Okay, I understand. But the Rebbe says three things. Three things over here. Number one, any thought of anger, any thought of, of animosity or, 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 or uh, resentment, you have to erase. Don't allow that thought even to enter your mind. Number two, he says, to feel kindness and love towards an individual and then to do favors for this person. What can be the explanation? Why does the person deserve a favor because they hurt me? It seems... 
How do you explain it to yourself? Especially when dealing with Chassidus Chabad, the Alter Rebbe, which doesn't only instruct us in certain behaviors, but he transforms our way of thinking. And he gives us the higher, um, godlier side of things that help us make that transformation. So over here too, of course, the Alter Rebbe doesn't leave us in the dark. So the explanation is not really here in this parak, but when you go to parak Chavhei in Agaris HaKodesh, and that is in the end of the time, in the last section of the time. In chapter, in, in, the, in the, the 25th letter, in Perek Chavhei of Agaris HaKodesh, on the second page, on page 276, Kuflam Ches on the base, over there the author of that says a couple of lines which give us insight into what he's saying over here in Perek Chavhei. Over there he brings the statement of the sages, I'm going to read again from inside. This is be understood by first prefacing the statement of the sages. What did the sages say? If anybody gets angry, as if the person served idols. And if someone loses their temper, the sages compare this person to, and or this or this uh, this this uh, anger to idolatry, which I mean. The sages are not just comparing things because they want to scare us. They want to, uh, they're exaggerating because a person shouldn't get angry. Obviously, if they're comparing something, it's because it really is this way. So we need to understand what is the comparison. Not only don't they seem to be alike, but they're completely different. Getting angry is a character flaw. Um, serving idols is an ideological uh, mistake. So how can we uh, compare the two, what kind of a connection do I have one to the other? So he explains like this, the Hatam. And the reason why we consider someone that gets angry as if they serve idols. So movement will be understood, that those who have knowledge, or those who have understanding, because at the time when a person is angry, their faith has departed from them. At this moment, they're not connected to their faith. Everybody has faith. The faith is natural. That's another thing that we learn in Tanya, that faith is embedded in every single Jew in his essence, and, you can, and, and, and therefore we're all believers. But at this moment that the person is getting angry, the moon has departed from him. Which means they're not conscious of their faith. Because faith and anger don't go together. The faith would contradict the anger, it would diffuse the anger, or even better than that, it wouldn't allow the anger to happen in the first place. Because if the person would really believe that from God this came to what are you getting angry? Getting angry at someone that has harmed you, someone has done something wrong. But if the person would believe that that this came to him from Hashem, he wouldn't be angry at all. If we have a moon, what's a moon? A moon is faith. Faith in what? Faith in God. That what? That God exists? More than that. Number one, God exists. Number two, God created the world. Number three, God controls the world. And when Hashem controls the world, He means He controls everything. Not only the huge um, world events, which nation goes to war, or how many hurricanes are they going to be in the Atlantic this year. If Hashem controls the universe, it means He controls every minute little detail of the universe. And therefore, if Chashashalim, I get hurt, any kind of hurt. Who did it to me? Hashem is the one who did it. 
They're from the smallest, little, most minute thing. No, the sages tell us that ain't no the mic of the boy that a person doesn't stub their toe. Ellen came a reasonable on the mile once they announced it had. We all have the experience from time to time that we we don't learn a lesson, but we all do this sometimes, you know, we always walk around our home without our shoes. And we knock our we stub our toe against a uh, a table, a wooden table, or a uh, uh, one of the utilities in the house or something like that. And we all have a we're in excruciating pain, jumping or hopping, and it really hurts. And what's the first thought? I mean, the first thought is, ouch. And what's the second thought as you're processing? You're in pain, and you say, oi, it should be a kapot. It's bashed, it hurts me, I know. I deserve it, let it be a kapot. So you realize, as a Jew, you realize that Hashem is the one that did it. Didn't, it wasn't just a random thing. If I hurt my toe, it was because Hashem made it happen. You burn your finger trying to take toast out of the toaster. Again, one of our smart things that we keep on doing in our life. And you try to get a toast out, and then you avoid getting burned. But then you get burned. That, that burn, and that is because Hashem decreed that you need that pain, and that's why you got it. And the same is all the pains that ache, so all the occurrences that happen. Good things and bad things that happen in our life. So when they are a result of some natural cause, a tree fell down during the hurricane, and it fell down on my car and it smashed my car. I recognize that one. That it's not the 90 mile per hour winds that destroyed my car. It wasn't the tree that destroyed it. It was Hashem who knocked down the tree onto my car and therefore I, have, I sustained the damage. And the biggest proof is because my neighbor, the next house over, also had his car parked in front of the tree. And the tree and the wind was hitting my tree and his tree in the same strength and here, that tree didn't fall, and this tree did fall. Or that tree fell a little bit off and didn't hit the car, and this one did. My car will lie, because for whatever reason, this had to happen. So that's a murder. We know everything that happens in the world is orchestrated, controlled, and directed by Hashem. So therefore, they have to say, so if you get hurt by someone else, that shouldn't be taken out of that, of that general rule, that everything that happens, Hashem did. And therefore, if I'm getting pain from someone, whether they hit me or hurt me physically, emotionally, or some kind of a financial loss, that too came from Hashem. As he said, that now the alphabet is now bothered by your question. They say, well, that is true again, if it's something that is a cause of pain that's coming from, from, a, from a natural cause. So that we know. Again, we all say Hashem. You know, how many times does it happen to us that we have some plans that we made and then it doesn't work out. We were planning a trip. And then, right before something happened, we get sick, and we cannot take the flight. We're aggravated. For a while, it takes a while to get over it. And it really bothers us. But in the end, we raise our hands up as a Jew, as a believer, and say, Bashem, I know that I, obviously I wasn't supposed to be by this wedding. I wasn't supposed to go. Who knows what could have happened? Maybe I should have saved me from something else that would have been much worse. So it's good. I, I didn't go. But that is, again, when it's what is the natural cause. When it comes to other people, it's much harder to feel that way. Because here's the problem. The problem is that here we're dealing with a human being who has free choice. And the human being that has free choice, meaning Hashem is giving this person some space. He's giving him pure restriction. He's saying to him here, I'm giving you and I'm allowing you to make a choice. And not only am I allowing you to make a choice, and I am telling you not to do so and so. I'm telling you not to, not to hit. Like we see this week in the Pasha, Pasha, we just read, 
It says, wicked if you, if, you, if you strike another person. So Hashem says, do not hit him. So you can't, how can you come and say over here and say, this was Hashem's will that I should get this punch in the nose. When clearly Hashem tells the perpetrator of the action, don't do it. And not only does he tell him not to do it, if he does do it, he punishes him. Which means he's holding him accountable. Which means Hashem is uh, 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 saying that you, you did it because you did it, not because I did it. So then the question is, in this case, how can I come and say that well, I shouldn't be angry because Hashem did it. No, Hashem didn't do it. Hashem, I didn't want it to happen if my nose is hurting. And Hashem didn't want this person to do it. Hashem didn't want it to happen because he explicitly said in the Torah, this is a violation of his commandment. Hashem said, thou shalt not steal. And Hashem said, don't inflict any pain on another person. So that's his question. And even though you were dealing with a human being, which is a person who can make a choice. Mikhailaloi curses him, or he strikes him, or he damages his money. And Adam, the person is obligated to be the other by the law of man, over the Nishmaya, and the law of heaven, on his negative choice that he has chosen. So therefore it wouldn't apply that everything comes from Hashem, because this is coming from human beings who have chosen evil. So the Rebbe said, Ahopikin, nevertheless, here is the very important teaching, Al-Hanizik, Varnitzah, Menashemaya, on the recipient of this pain, on the one that received this damage, on that person, it was already decreed upon in heaven that they are meant to get that suffering. Meaning, one should not attribute their pain and they're, they're, they're hurt to the result of this person doing it, because no. It's true that if this person punched me in the nose, that my pain is coming from their punch. But what I need to know is like this. Had this person exercised self-control and not delivered the punch, then I personally would have gotten the very same that's in the nose. I would have gotten it somewhere else. Maybe I wouldn't have gotten it from there, but in many ways, because there are many other ways that Hashem can do it, as the answer never continues. And God has many agents. Hashem has infinite possibilities. If for whatever divine reason which we don't understand, someone's nose has to be hurting. There are many ways that the person that can happen. The person can cast show slip on the ice instantly and hurt their nose. They can trip on the sidewalk and hurt their nose. They can walk by someone can slam the door and hit them in the nose. The person can watch and uh, you know, shows us our human uh, fragility um, and quite humbling when there is a very wonderful janitorial crew that clean the windows very, very clean that you don't even realize it's a window and you walk right in and boom, smash. So there are so many ways we don't have to be innovative in which someone's nose can hurt. One of the ways that Hashem makes it possible, when a person needs to have a nose ache, there are a bloody nose, one of the ways that Hashem makes it possible is He brings about, He orchestrates an encounter where this person has an encounter with someone who's a Baba hero with a human being in a situation of a confrontation, in a situation where the other person is upset because he took his parking spot, and Hashem puts, at that very moment, in which that pain has to come about the person, Hashem gives this individual the opportunity to strike the other and be the agent for that pain. But Hashem clearly tells that individual, I am asking you not to do it. You keep out of it. 
I want to bring pain on this person. I'm presenting you with the opportunity, but I am asking and I am begging of you, please don't do it. If you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it, but I'm asking you not to do it. If the person chooses to do it, then they did something bad. And for that, they're high both the Dine Adam in by the law down here, there's any kind of injury or pain that they have to pay. Or Dine Shamayim, they would have to do reckoning with God in heaven. But in as much as the recipient of this pain is concerned, they receive the pain not because of a negative choice of this individual. They receive this pain because Hashem was the one who gave it to them. And they would have received it anyways. And therefore, why? Why should someone be angry? What is it to be angry? Obviously, see, the person is getting angry. I'm not getting angry because you made a, you did it immoral, you made a bad choice. Because if I'm really, the source of my anger is because you did a bad choice, how come I don't get so angry and so enraged at all the other bad choices that you've done? person is not, oh, 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 maybe they make up, maybe move something, move such maybe I don't know, maybe insulted someone else, you don't, maybe I'm upset, but I'm not that upset. Obviously I'm getting it because I feel good and me. That's opposite of the younger one. Because I'm the one that a person has that Hashem controls the entire world and controls everything to every little minor detail. So he's controlling this as well. And this infliction, this pain, came to me from Hashem, so I don't even begin it. And the same as everything. And we gave a martial law, a person striking someone else. Same thing as if you, someone cheats you for money. If someone cheated you out of a hundred dollars. Whatever it is, how they cheated. If someone robbed you from a hundred dollars. The guy stole a hundred dollars from your, from your wallet in the mix-up. Okay? And you're angry because you lost the money. But the yin has to know how Mamuna is. And if I'm lacking $100 today because Hashem wanted me to lose that $100, and I would have lost it anyways. I would have parked somewhere and forgot to put money in the meter or the meter would have expired and I would have gotten a fine of $100. My toilet could have gotten clogged and I would have had to call a plumber and the plumber would have come and it would have cost me $100. I would have parked my car quickly and hit the curb and my tire would have busted and I would have caused me a tire, a new tire, I'd have to pay $100. There are so many different ways that this I could have lost this money, and that I 100% without a shadow of a doubt would have lost that money. One of the ways is, again, Hashem gives this person an opportunity and tells him, Loy signal don't steal. And if he does, he made a bad choice. But that's between him and Hashem. Between as much as the recipient it is, Allah Nigzar, Far Nigzar, and Hashemayim, Vahar Deshbuchim, Lavakim, and there are many agents to go. Which is a fascinating matter. That Alter Rebbe is saying over here that there is no one in the world, absolutely no one in the world that can harm you. No one can ever harm you. You can never be harmed by a human being because no one has control over your life. If you're getting angry at someone, that's a lack of amuna. That's because, and that's why, why it's explaining, that's why it's compared to, to idol worship. Because what's, what's serving an idol? You're attributing power to someone that's not God. And in this case, this person is also contributing power to some other being other than God that someone has to say in what's happening in this world. Someone can cause something in this world besides Hashem. And that is that individual. In other words, you're really making the recipient of your anger, you're making them an idol. And you're worshipping them, giving them credit for something they haven't done because they have no power to do it. And if it was not Hashem's will, that you should get hurt. And then even if they would have intended it, like many times people intend and they want to hurt someone, they throw a punch and the punch misses. Even though they did an immoral choice, the, the recipient wasn't meant to get it. That's why it missed. Or a bullet missed its target. Or the gun jammed. But this is an incredible teaching. No one in the world can harm any person. Any harm or anything that happens to any human being comes 
directly from Hashem but no one else. And this is a big thing. When it comes, Hashem, to the loss of life, if a person took someone else's life, accidentally or intentionally, as a Muna, believers, we have very challenging and difficult, and no one should be tested with this. But the Amunah is that if a person's life came to an end because their life was supposed to come to an end at this time. And there are many ways the person could have lost their life. Could have been some other accident, could have been a heart attack, could have been an illness, could have been so many other ways. But one of the ways is Hashem sadly brings this person into the pathway of someone who's uh, challenged with some kind of a rage and some kind of an anger and goes ahead and perpetrates a murder. But not has for for one second to believe that that human being, because of their, because of their sour mood or because of their rage, can infringe on another human being and stop a human being's life. A human being that is created by God and here on a godly mission is not so vulnerable and so fragile that any person that is experiencing road rage or any kind of anger can, can jeopardize God's plan. Chas God forbid. If a person died, they would have died. Then, in some other way, of course we can't imagine it and we can't always understand how, but that's what would have happened. And therefore, there is no reason for rage at the end of at that at that end. Because it's not that. It was the Abishur that did. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, in the case we said before, when someone stole money from you, it doesn't mean that they let him get away with the Geneva. Of course, you have to go to the you, you, you have to go to the, the, the court and ask for the money back. Well, if you lose, same with me. If you lose money, you lose money on the street. So what are you supposed to do? You say, well, Hashem wanted me to lose. No, if you lost money on the street, you should go back on the street and search for it. If you find the money, that will be a, that will be a proof that Hashem's, Hashem's denial was that you should only have a little aggravation to lose it for ten minutes, lose it for half an hour. If you don't find it, that's an indication that you were supposed to lose it for a longer time. So the same with those. If someone stole money, and you have a way to get it back by taking them to court. Of course, you have to do that. If you'll get it back, it's a sign that the, the decree of God is only for a short time. And if you didn't get it back, it's a sign that it was meant to be lost forever. But that's in terms of doing whatever you can to get the money back. In terms of rage and resentment, the Altar ever says there's no reason for that. There's no place for that. Now, we'll take it a step further. Take this concept a step further. And that is, because this only explains why the first part that was said earlier in the Perkin days, not to have resentment, not to have anger against the other individual. Well, he said more than that. He said one should restore the 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 hate, the the the, the wrong, the person that has wronged you, and respond to them with love, and respond to them with kindness. How does that work? And what would be the reason? See, when one takes this idea a little further, in first recognizing that it wasn't this person, but it came to be from Hashem. And then I take the step a step further. If Hashem is doing it, then I have to reevaluate what happened. Because if it was done to me by a human being, so then there's two possibilities. Either it's good or it's bad, or it's a mixture, three possibilities, or it's a mixture. Because a person has a good side thing, and it's a Yetzirah, and therefore they could be following the Yetzirah and doing good things. A person has an evil side, and it could be they're doing what the Yetzirah wants. And the person has a, a uh, or sometimes it's a mixture of good and bad. Right? But when Hashem is doing something, Hashem doesn't have a Yetzirah. Hashem doesn't have an evil inclination. So Hashem is perfectly God, good with utter perfection of goodness. So if Hashem is doing something to me, it's because Hashem, it must be good, because God is only capable of good. He created the world out of the desire for goodness. 
Oilam Chesed Yibana. The world was built on Chesed. The entire project from the beginning to the end is all Chesed. It's kindness. So what, what happened, what Hashem is doing, is a good thing. Because Hashem only does good. So if I received some kind of a pain in my life, if I know that it wasn't this person that did it, and therefore it's bad, but I know that it, it, it came my way because this is what Hashem wanted, and Hashem is good, so obviously that which happened is a good thing. Now how do we understand that it's a good thing? I mean, after all, it's painful. After all, it hurts. Well, for that, uh, we learn other places, and there's a long explanation in Tanya chapter 26, in which the author really explains the theme and the, and the idea of comes with the This too is for the good. Everything that God does is for the good. And the explanation is very briefly is that there are two types of good. Sometimes there is a good that is perceivable, understandable by limited creation. And sometimes God is doing to the acting with a person with such a good, a goodness on a godly scale that a human being can't comprehend. It's too big for the person's mind. And therefore, to the recipient, it looks like pain, it looks like a negative thing. It's a blessing in disguise. We all know with our children, um, women for sure will identify with this, and those fathers that help their wives, even in such uh, situations when you have a child and uh, the baby needs a diaper change. Sometimes the baby's been sitting in the soil diaper for a while, and they have a rash. And it's pain, and, and as a parent, you need to uh, remove the soil diaper and clean the baby up. And you reckon the baby is shrieking in pain because they have, their, their, they have this raw skin. And as a parent, you're cringing, but you're doing your work, which to the child looks like the biggest cruelty, but from your end, you're doing the greatest kindness for your child. So sometimes Hashem is doing something and He's cleaning us up and it hurts and it seems to be terrible but it's really a good thing. Sometimes it's just not, it's not a cleansing. Sometimes it's just we're just not seeing the whole picture. Sometimes a person loses their job and they think the world has ended and the worst thing the worst day in their life but in the end as a result of them not having a job they look around and they start their own business and become very successful or they get a much better job. So life is always that way full of surprises. So what seems to be bad is really good. So, that, so if I know that what, what, what is being done to me was done to me by Hashem, and that Hashem is good, I mean that that experience that up till now I thought was so terrible and so painful, in which I had resented to this individual, first of all I disconnected them from my life and recognized they have no control over my life. It's coming from Hashem. And secondly, thinking into it deeper, suddenly my attitude is changing from 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 pain and hurt to a feeling of wow. Something good, right, happened. I mean, where is it coming from? It's coming from a, from a source that is pure good. And that source has, has my best intentions in mind. That source loves me more than my mother, more than my father, more than my grandmother, more than any person in the world because Hashem loves me with infinite love. And He is specifically, not distracted with anything else, Hashem is leading my life and He got involved right now to bring this thing on me Especially when it's a change, when it's a virgin. So you see that Hashem is now acting out of the ordinary with me, and Hashem is good, so what is being done is, the, is a goodness. So I'm happy. I'm thrilled with this, that was, which was once pain, is now on, on a deeper level experienced as goodness. And then, that's step number three. And then when I realize 
everything is everything is said and done. Who was the one who was instrumental in bringing me that good? Who was the one who delivered that good? It was this individual. True, they made a bad choice, and true, they had bad intentions and malicious intentions, and they wanted to hurt me. But again, that has nothing to do with me. After it was Hashem that did it, and this person was the agent of Hashem to deliver me this extra goodness. Shouldn't I feel thankful to them? This is a result of this of this of this reasoning. We come back to parachute base. And a person can respond to people that cause them aggravation with ligma, the chayyavim tayyavim. I really have to thank you. You have done something nice for me. What your intentions are irrelevant. But to me, you've done something wonderful. You've done something good. So, in a sense, you know, this, this, this really revolutionizes everything. Revolutionizes everything. I mean, if, if I understand this correctly, Please, uh, you can send your uh, please to those who are listening. Uh, send me the feedback on, on this if you understood the Tanya this way. But I think we can characterize this and, and to um, define this as something like this. Um, the Rebbe is saying, the Alta Rebbe is saying really three things. Uh, one following the other, which gives us a whole entire new definition on good and evil in the world. And that is as follows. Number one. Number one is that no one in the world has any control over anybody. Every single thing that happens in the world is done by Hashem. That's number one. Everything. From the, from the, from the greatest things happening on, on, a, on, a, on a universal scale to the most minute subatomic particles is being done by Hashem. Including human activities. Including actions that human beings, that human beings do, do even moral actions, actions that involve that, that, that involve a person's moral choices. Even that is being done by Hashem. So every single thing in the universe, from when the world was created, from the nations, but the kindness of Shemayim, the Sahara, until today, in the year five seven seven three, Chavdala Tevis, until today, every single thing that happened in the world was done by Hashem. Point number two. Hashem is good. And therefore everything he does is good. That means from the day the world was created until the present day, only good things happened. Never, and if you add it together, if everything in the world is done by God, and if Hashem is only good, and everything that he does is correct, that is correct and good, that in every single thing that ever happened in the world, everywhere, from the beginning of time to the end of time, it's only good. There was never a bad moment in the world. That's point number two. Point number three, we come to a question. So what's the whole story with evil? What's the whole story with good and bad in the world? We know there's powers of krechus atuma, powers of impurity, powers of evil in the world. How do we define good and bad? What's with evil? If everything in the world is good, and the answer is something like this. That, how would we define from this perspective good and evil? When God is doing something, when Hashem is doing something, and obviously it's a good thing because Hashem does good, in which Hashem asks us of, asks of us to lend him a hand and to help him do that good thing, Hashem is asking us, please, 
help me do this good thing, then that is good. For instance, Hashem says in this big corner there is a homeless person. He hasn't eaten in for days. I want to feed him. And Hashem says to the person, please help me feed that individual. I'd like to give him a sandwich. And the person goes ahead and doesn't give him money because he doesn't know what he's going to use the money for. But he says, I'll buy him a sandwich. And he goes and buys him, buys him a sandwich. So then, you've done something. You've done goodness. You've done a kindness. And when you look at this person and you look into their eyes and you thought, you know, when you gave him that sandwich, you don't know if they would have made it through the cold night. Had they not And you feel good. You feel wonderful. You feel like you've saved a life. You've done an act of goodness and plus you've saved a life. So first of all, you have to know. Even though, of course, you were God's agent to save a life, but you, you're not. It's not because you gave him the sandwich that he's alive. If this person is meant to live, and to be, and that they shouldn't be starving, they would have gotten the food. They would have gotten the nuts. You wouldn't give them the sandwich. That's all would have walked by with their groceries and dropped the bag, maybe with a sandwich, and they would have eaten that food and they would have had it. Whether you get it, there's so many ways that Hashem could bring that person food. But you were an agent. You are Hashem's hand in order to bring that. You've done a good thing. And, you, and, and that's considered goodness. That's, that's, so when Hashem is doing something good and He asks us to listen to Him, that's goodness. When Hashem is doing something good, good, but He tells us, please don't help me in doing it, and yet we go and we lend our assistance when Hashem says, don't worry, I can do it myself, I don't want you to participate, I don't want you to be my partner in this. And we become partners and we do do that which Hashem asks us not to assist him in the good thing that he's doing, then that is evil. Hashem says that this person needs to lose money for a good reason. Because Hashem is taking away money from that person, it's for a good reason. But Hashem says, I, I can take the money from him the way I would like, and I don't want you to assist me. And yet we are assisting Hashem in that act. That is evil. But that's only evil on our part. In terms of something, nothing evil happened in the world, even though this person perpetrated evil. Hashem said, I want to bring pain. I want this person to have some kind of emotional pain for whatever good reason. And I'm asking you, please don't help me deliver that pain. And the person comes along and says something insulting. Something degrading to this human being and causes them that pain. So then that is evil because even though what happened was a good thing, but Hashem said, don't help me. And of course, when it comes to taking a life, Hashem said, well, he said, that don't help me. And if we do, that is evil. But this whole idea that we're learning over here is so liberating. It's so free. And of course, it's very hard to implement it in the big things of life. We have rage and anger against someone that really hurt us, but we could put it into practice when it comes to the little, to the little uh, aggravations that we have in our home with our spouse, with our children, with our close people, and which our regular reaction is either to either to teach them a lesson or to to be angry and frustrated, walk around with a sour face the whole day because our wife or her said something to us, and. But this, this idea of the Tanya is so liberating. Our blood pressure goes down. Hashem li mayasa li adam. Hashem is with me. What can a person do? Oh, no one can hurt me. I'm only in Hashem's hands. Everything that's happening is all the time good. This attitude will improve our relationships. Because then, then there's no agitation. There's no... And always, if someone does something bad, they respond with good. You know, but after a while, they're not going to do it anymore. So, the whole... The whole person's life is kind of
This is really, really special. And Hashem gives us the ability to implement this teaching and this lesson in our lives and through our relationships. Make the world a better place one little bit at a time. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.